a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. The headline touts elections held in Hong Kong. The question behind the headline were they free and fair or China controlled? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, many human rights activists are worried after a hardline supporter of the Chinese government was elected as Hong Kong's chief executive over the weekend. So, will Hong Kong remain a place of freedom and free expression, or has Beijing put the final nail in that coffin of dissent? Liz Wolf is the associate editor at Reason Magazine, Reason.com, and she joins us now as a great piece talking about how the pandemic uh, had an influence on dissent in Hong Kong as well. Liz, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's dive into this. Uh, and let's start with some of the things during the, the pandemic in terms of how that impacted what is going on in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really astonishing. I think so many people in the U.S. look at the pandemic as something that what governments have used uh, as an excuse, as a pretense to deprive people of their civil liberties. And I think there's a very strong case to be made for that in the United States. But the really, really strong case is in Hong Kong, where we saw in 2019 the national security law being proposed, which was sort of the beginnings of Beijing trying to bring Hong Kong under its grip. For a long time, Hong Kong had operated as this this semi-independent, fairly autonomous legal system apart from mainland China. And Beijing had really seen it as a top priority to bring Hong Kong under its control. So when the pandemic hit, uh, the Hong Kong's legislator, legislative council was up for elections. Though COVID served as the reason why those LegCo elections were postponed for a year. Uh, but the convenient political side of this is that the pro-democracy coalition had been really strong. You know, there had been millions, a million people protesting in the streets of Hong Kong in 2019 and up until the beginning of 2020. So most observers sort of assumed that there would be significant pro-democracy goodwill voting for certain legislators, but instead with postponing those elections by a year until 2021, uh, you know, that, that really changed the, the political situation. And in the meantime, Beijing forced those legislators who were running for office to swear loyalty oaths to the mainland China. Wow, and that's uh, that's where everything really starts to to shift uh, again. I think over the weekend, a lot of people just kind of went, "Uh oh, uh, this is another another bad step." And of course, many have been watching this closely since uh, Hong Kong 
uh, was moved back uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, of course, it was supposed to be able to uh, maintain that uh, autonomy until 2047. But it seems like uh, things have been accelerating, as you mentioned, uh, since the pandemic began. Everything from you know being able to hold vigils in Tiananmen Square uh, to these actual elections, these loyalty oaths uh, to mainland China, uh, all seem to be getting in the way and accelerating what seems to be a tightening grip of China on Hong Kong. It, yeah, it's really, really disturbing. I mean, you have to consider that Hong Kong is historically a place with very strong uh, participation in democracy, very strong voter turnout. So it's pretty telling that with these most recent elections, some 30% of people showed up to vote. Uh, for comparison, in the past, I think in November 2019, it was 71% of registered voters who wow. showed up. So it's not like a significant uh, a portion of registered voters who typically are participating in elections just had a change of heart over the course of two years. No, this is directly a reflection of a loss of confidence in the legitimacy of these elections. And I think those numbers are really, really staggering. But then you look at so many other levels of society. I mean, universities used to be places where professors could freely speak their minds and students could challenge uh, you know, mainland and Beijing fed orthodoxy, universities are no longer like that. You know, you, they used to be able to host art ex exhibitions and have statues honoring people who died in Tiananmen Square. And one of those statues was recently removed in the dead of night mm. with police cordoning off the statue, making sure that nobody could observe the process or even document what was happening. I mean, this is, universities used to be a place where people could really learn a much more legitimate, honest account of Chinese history and of Hong Kong's history, and now that's no longer the case. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And uh, we, we had an interesting conversation with former U.S. ambassador to China, also former U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, John Huntsman Jr. And uh, he talked about uh, both of those places, China in particular, uh, that the thing they fear the most uh, are those uh, Western values. That freedom of expression uh, seems to be top of mind every day. Uh, for those that are in power in China, uh, how have you seen that in, in your reporting, Liz, in terms of what seems to be the real driving force in terms of this tightening grip? Yeah, I think I think to, there's definitely such a strong culture of freedom in Hong Kong that it does seem like the mainland is very threatened by that. Um, I mean, Hong Kong has very strong democratic norms and a hugely powerful and impressive, non mostly nonviolent protest movement. I do think, you know, just as it's important to report accurately on domestic protests in the U.S. whenever they do veer out of control, there have been a few examples of that happening with Hong Kong mm -hmm. protesters. So I want to be very honest yeah. there. But at the same time, this is primarily a very, very peaceful and actually well-organized protest movement um, of people who really legitimately don't want to live under communism's thumb. Uh, I think the, the, the fact that the Tiananmen uh, vigils were suppressed with COVID rules being uh, extended up until the day after the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. I see that as the most obvious example of the fact that authorities are afraid of the degree to which the residents of Hong Kong are really interested in, in honoring their past and learning from it. Yeah, so important. And I appreciate you bringing up the fact, uh, Liz, this is why we love having you on the program, is that you you look at all the angles and report all the things that matter, uh, because you do have to make sure we have that balance. And so as, as we watch this moving forward, uh, what is it that we should be watching for here in the United States? Why does this matter 
here. Uh, we've Obviously, we've seen things play out in Ukraine, and suddenly they seem to matter more. Uh, but what is it about Hong Kong in particular that we should be watching, or what are you watching in the weeks ahead? I'm constantly paying attention with both the crisis in Ukraine and what's happened in Hong Kong to the degree to which the U.S. government will loosen up immigration policy, specifically for, you know, super educated and highly qualified residents of Hong Kong who absolutely hate communism, who want to have the opportunity to to pursue a better life. I'm always interested in how U.S. immigration policy and the Biden administration will try to accommodate those people or extend a helping hand to them. Uh, I am hopeful, though not super optimistic, that we will allow more refugees from Ukraine and more people who want to, you know, engage in academic freedom and in, in honest, forthright discussion. I'm, I'm constantly optimistic that we will extend them visas to come study and live in the U.S., though, you know, it's, it's hard when, when coupled with a realistic understanding of our immigration policy, it is, it is hard to see how that will play out in practice. Uh, I'm going to sneak in one last question, Liz, because you you just sparked my attention with that focus on immigration. Again, we often don't think about that uh, as we're talking about freedom and fair elections and all of those things. Uh, that this ability for those who are uh, highly educated, though, I mean, you really could create a brain drain uh, in both, even including Russia, Russia or uh, Hong Kong by changing the dynamics of some of those uh, immigration requirements and giving those who do want to live under freedom rather than the, the communist rule. Uh, how do you see that playing out in terms of the immigration issue? Well, I think immigration is just far too heated of an issue in the U.S. right now. I really wish we could turn down the temperature on so many levels on both sides and really return it to the sense of our foreign adversaries like China and Russia are, are, you know, threatening us in many ways. And one of the really peaceful, voluntary, and actually fairly easy ways that we can uh, cripple some of their resources is by allowing people who say no to communism or no to authoritarian rule uh, to come immigrate to the U.S. Like, I see that as just such an obvious win-win. And I'm hopeful that more people, especially on the right, who really do see what's happening with the CCP, I'm hopeful that they'll begin to sort of soften hearts and minds and be interested in how brain drain can really become a huge threat to Xi Jinping's power. Wow, fantastic. Liz Wolf, we always love your perspective. Thanks for making us think again about uh, this important issue and bringing in some uh, real subtleties, the nuance that uh, makes all the difference. Liz Wolf, associate editor at Reason.com, Reason Magazine, uh, always worth a good read. Liz, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love that perspective from Liz Wolf and thinking about China, Hong Kong, thinking about Russia uh, in terms of immigration and creating a path for those that are educated and engaged and those who are tired of living under that kind of regime to come to the United States. Uh, that kind of brain drain policy is one that is definitely worth thinking about and thinking again about in the halls of Congress. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.